Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. This is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Just ahead on the show, rapper Omaretta the Great schools us on Atlanta geography. Plus, we'll hear about a new show at the Southeast Fabric Arts Alliance. And then we'll wrap up today with a new installment of our series, H. Johnson's Jazz Moment. But first, Naranana, formerly known as the Atlanta Jewish Music Festival, shares and celebrates Jewish heritage through music and art across genres. This year, Naranana will present their music series side by side at the Atlanta History Center on August 25th. The concert will feature executive director Joe Alterman playing with father-son music combo Ben and Leo Sidrin. The series title Side by Side refers to the Bremen and Naranana working together, and when this trio recently joined City Lights host Lois Reitzis, Alterman began by explaining how the festival's name exemplifies togetherness. Well, we're really excited about this this series. We're co-presenting everything with the Bremen, and so everything is side by side that we have the Bremen and Naranana, but I think there's more to it in that we both like to go a little behind the the music, for example, like with Naranana, all of our concerts have a story component to it. So there's the song and the story behind the song and the Bremen does very similar, you know, behind the music type stuff with their programming as well. I think uh, our missions are very aligned and that we kind of both want to bring a 92nd Street Y to Atlanta, in a sense. Yeah, for people who aren't familiar with that revered New York City institution, what does that mean? Well, basically, it's actually a YMHA, Hebrew, in New York. And it's, uh, I mean, you know, it's, it's a community center that, you know, has a gym and everything like that. But I would go when I lived in New York, I would go and hear Aretha Franklin have a conversation with someone or I'd go, you know, hear uh, Gene Wilder or uh, oh. and it was just incredible. They just brought so much great art to New York and it's in a city that's saturated with so much art. I love that there is this Jewish center, Jewish center, <laughs> that is, uh, you know, known as one of the, the great cultural centers in New York. And I think both Naran and I and the Bremen are really striving to bring great things like that to Atlanta. Ben, your book, There Was a Fire, Jews, Music, and the American Dream, explores the impact of Jewish culture on American music. Reading that book had a transformative effect on Joe Alterman. Not long after we met, he gave me a copy as a gift, and I was absolutely enthralled with the depth of thought and insight of your book. How would you define Jewish music? Oh, well, <laughs> you opened up a, a can of worms there. Uh, the short answer is it's impossible to define it. A slightly longer answer would be it's music uh, that somehow evokes or underscores a Jewish narrative somehow. The music that's used, the liturgic music and the secular music, 
done by Jewish composers all has a certain kind of narrative to it. And I think that that narrative not only defines what Jewish music is, but it also defines what or who a Jew is because it, there are no Jewish notes on the piano, I like to say. So you, <laughs> yeah, you, you, can't, you can't define it that way. Similarly, Jews come in all shapes, sizes, colors, ages, everything. It's impossible to define. And yet some people clearly identify as Jewish and some music clearly has Jewish elements to it. And so my take on that is the narrative, the, the story of caring for one another, of course, tikkun olam, social justice, these themes carry through in the lyrics, but they also have a place in the melodies to define how exactly is a bit laborious. But basically, that, <laughs> that's my roundabout way of, of defining Jewish music today. Now, tomorrow, I might have a completely <laughs> different, different definition. That's very Talmudic <laughs> of you. You know, you're going to, it's right. a running commentary in addition to the 400 page book you wrote. You <laughs> and Leo will perform at the Atlanta History Center on Thursday, August 25th, would you talk about the musical relationship that you two have in addition to the familial? Well, Leo, I think, should respond to this because he has a wonderful take on it, and I myself can only say that... Uh, if it wasn't for Leo, I would no longer be performing. Leo, take it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know if I have a wonderful take. I can also say that if it wasn't for Ben, I, I would not be performing because, of course, you know, playing music in our house when I was growing up was the most natural thing to do. I have often thought about how it was never a question or a choice or a decision that was made. It was just a reality. It was something that was happening. Not that it was imposed in any way, but it, there was just music and our, our way of communicating, of connecting, of hanging out was through music. I mean, probably the most commonly used word in my house when I was in, I don't know, middle school and high school was jam. Do you want to jam? <laughs> Let's jam. Let's go jam. After dinner, we would go up and jam. And, you know, so there was no formality about it and there was no real structure about it either it was just something that we did and you know maybe ben knew maybe my dad understood before i did that there was something really special that was kind of taking hold and, and forming but for me it was it was very very natural and because of that i i didn't take it seriously for the longest time i mean i really didn't think what we did was very serious i thought it you know all those other musicians out there were doing the real music and what we were doing was basically just jamming in the attic eventually we started to basically take that same approach out in public i like that well, that'll do, that'll do for you. So people don't leave, cause it sounds simple. You know, good things often do. Believe me when I say to you, I really do have something you can use. I really do have something you can use. was just uh, well really when I was still in college he started to kind of take me out on the road with him and just told me to jam with him which again I said well you're not serious this isn't this <laughs> when are we going to do the serious thing you know and here we are 25 30 years into this kind of long extended jam session which in its own way is Talmudic because it is constantly filled with commentary it's like a running, <laughs> a running musical commentary that goes back you know 30 plus years. Oh, I should add for listeners, you are a drummer. Your dad is a pianist yes. as well as a writer. So when did you first pick up those sticks? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, the sticks actually were, were sort of placed in my hands. I think it was, <laughs> it was a well-chosen instrument for a restless child. And later on, 
you know, I p play other instruments too. I play guitar and piano and I spend a lot of time in the studio, but the drums were the first instrument, I think, because I was just a little uh, unwieldy and they, and they, uh, they thought maybe it would be a good physical outlet for me. But I will also say that being a drummer is a great way to understand the overall picture of music it's sort of like being the goalie in soccer or something right you see the whole pitch in front of you as the drummer you kind of hear everything you're right in the center of everything so I, I think drums are a great way to approach music I love that description you both have a special connection with the Steve Miller band would you each talk about how you were involved with him well, this is Ben. I uh, met Steve in college. We were both 18 years old and there was a little band in college and we would play fraternity parties, that sort of thing. And then uh, a couple of years after graduation, I was in England at a graduate program uh, studying at uh, Sussex University and Steve came to London to record his first record. And uh, so I would go from Brighton, England, where Sussex University is, to London at nights and, and record with him. And so I got into the recording business that way. And subsequently, over the years, I wrote songs with Steve and produced some recordings for him and, and traveled with his band from time to time. So it was really just an extension for me of a college uh, friendship. Leo? Well, as part of that extension that Ben just talked about in the mid to late 80s, they had sort of reconnected Ben and Steve to make a jazz record called Born to be Blue. Some folks were meant to live in clover, but they are such a chosen few, chosen few. the record was released they went out on tour and i was just at that age where you just are a sponge everything that enters is just absorbed and becomes part of the fabric of who you are so i i spent a number of years standing on the side of the stage uh, just when i was 13 14 15 watching ben perform with steve and then went back into the hotel room or to my uh, house and started writing songs that were in many ways influenced by hearing them play and by being around those songs. And then, of course, what do you do? You play your songs for your parents and, and the, the elders in your life. So I played my songs for my dad and for Steve. And Steve ultimately ended up recording a bunch of the songs that I wrote that had been sort of influenced by him. I want to talk to you. incredible feedback loop of influence where I was listening to him and writing my songs and playing them for him and then he recorded them so when I was 15 he he recorded a handful of my songs on an album and that was kind of how I launched myself into you know professional music a whole lot of generosity here uh, along with your talent you grew up seeing your father perform with legendary folks and produce for musicians such as Van Morrison, Diana Ross, and Michael Franks, to name a few. How did that influence your trajectory mm. in music? I mean, I, I often feel that I am just in the family business. You know, I mean, I just saw what was possible. I saw that you could have a career as a performing musician and a producer and spend time in the studio. And you could also be a journalist and, you know, you could sort of do it all. 
you know, that's because that's what Ben did. So in, in one way, I think it influenced me just in, in the breadth of what he did and understanding what was possible. And speaking of family business, this is not in terms of shared DNA, but metaphorically speaking, Ben, you did some very impressive work for NPR with Jazz Alive and your other program. Hats off to you for that as well. Well, thank you. I always loved the idea of spending time with my heroes, the musicians, and the more time I spent with them, the more I realized that there were extraordinary individuals and at the same time, they were really down to earth. And so I started to see my performing and uh, my career at National Public Radio, all that sort of thing, as of one piece. It was just a way of talking about the lives and the, the kind of uh, American roots of the jazz experience. So I, I was just lucky as a huge fan of the music and somebody who has been trying to express myself through jazz for 70 some years now. I was just fortunate to be at a time when National Public Radio welcomed me in and uh, I, I could develop both skills. I know jazz musicians are especially reluctant to offer information about set lists. But do you know of any songs you definitely will perform together at the Atlanta History Center? Oh, uh, well, Leo will have to answer that. <laughs> this idea of a set list is kind of a running joke between us, and he'll tell you why. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, first of all, I, I think reluctance is a generous way of putting it. I, <laughs> I will say that after, you know, however many years it's been that Ben, that my father and I, that Ben and I have been playing together, and it is a running joke. There, there was a time when we made a live recording in Madrid years ago where I, I didn't even make a set list for him. I just wrote a list of, let's say, 30 songs that over the course of the week we were going to play because we're trying to record multiple versions of them so we could choose the best one for the record. And we got... I don't know, a day or two into the residency and he, in the middle of the gig, picked up the 30 song list and ripped it in half in front of me. Saying, <laughs> I cannot be contained by your limitations. Oh. <laughs> and, but this year, miraculously, maybe it was the sort of the, the reset that COVID provided for all of us. After taking a year off the road, we did go to Europe for a month and we had a kind of set list. I mean, it, it wasn't, I think what Ben ultimately came to understand was that a set list is a good thing to have so that you can react against it. I mean, even if you decide not to play exactly what's on the set list, you've got some point of reference. Having said all that, I can tell you nothing about it. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned or listeners will simply have to attend the evening at the History Center to find out. That's right. Joe. Can you give us a bit of an overview of the other events on this schedule? It's it's a rich one, but if you could just give us some highlights. Oh, definitely. And I also wanted just to throw out uh, very quickly that, you know, Leo runs uh, Third Story, which is my favorite podcast around. And every year he does a conversation with Ben around Ben's birthday. And that's my favorite episode of any podcast every year. So I just oh. have to thank you for bringing the three of us together today um, and encourage everyone to check out that podcast. But yeah, we have a, a jam-packed week. First, we'll be beginning at the Plaza Theater, where we'll be showing the film Live at Mr. Kelly's. And my trio will be performing this Live at Mr. Kelly's film, uh, it's really the story of two Jewish uh, visionaries who started two clubs in Chicago that really changed changed the world. And I scored the film and appeared alongside Ramsey Lewis a few times. So that was a, a, a thrill. And then Thursday, the 25th, is this evening with Ben and Leo. And then the next day, we'll be having a great uh, musical Shabbat. We call it Spirit and Soul. And it's with Michael Lapidus and Hello, Goodbye, and Peace. And quite a few members of the Ebenezer Church Choir. And we'll be hosting that at the lawn of the Margaret Mitchell House. And then uh, the next night on Saturday, we'll be hosting Eric Krasnow and the Assembly. Incredible guitarist at the Loft and his, his great funk group. And then uh, the next night, we'll be hosting the great comedian Jessica Curson at Round Trip Brewing. She's 
hilarious. So uh, I hope y'all will come out. <laughs> but that's the week. I'm excited about it. How does this line up showcase inclusivity and appeal to a broad audience while still honoring the organization's commitment to Jewish roots? Yeah, well, Naran and I in Hebrew means let's come together and sing. And everything here has a, a Jewish story to it, but it's not a story just for Jews. It's the story that uh, anyone could relate to. For example, I mean, Ben has a great story in his book about Take Me Out to the Ball Game, which was written by a Jewish guy who had never been to a baseball game and read an article about baseball in a Yiddish newspaper and wrote the song. And, you know, looking at the lyrics, it's not necessarily about baseball. It's about wanting to belong. And that's something that you can relate to as just a person, not just a Jew or a non-Jew, as anyone. And um, I think everything we have here, any story is something that, you know, has a Jewish story, but it's something that anyone could relate to and identify with. And, you know, for example, this Shabbat, it's not, there's no prayer book, but there is a spiritual thing. And we're, we're encouraging different communities to come out and everything, you know, to me, the whole thing was with the Atlanta Jewish Music Festival. If there was an Atlanta Christian Music Festival, I might not pick up the flyer, but the Atlanta Gospel Music Festival, I'd go to right away. Yes. And this is finally that. <laughs> Naranana Executive Director Joe Alterman. He was joined by father-son jazz duo Ben and Leo Sidron. They're performing in the Side-by-Side series on August 25th at the Atlanta History Center. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, rapper Omaretta the Great shares the story behind her hit song, Sorry Not Sorry. Amplifying Atlanta, this is W-A-B-E. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes, and it is great to have you along. Do you consider yourself to be a true Atlantean? Well, rapper and Love and Hip Hop Atlanta cast member Omaretta the Great may have a bone to pick with you, especially if you didn't grow up here. Her single, Sorry Not Sorry, plants a flag firmly in the soil of what she considers to be the real Atlanta and challenges outsiders who lay claim to the city. When Omaretta joined Lois this past March, she began by sharing the story behind her song. It's basically about people that's like from the outskirts of Atlanta or like surrounding cities from Atlanta claiming like when people ask them where they from, they automatically say Atlanta when they not from Atlanta. So it's a track that's basically clarifying that all of those cities that surround Atlanta is not Atlanta. Like it's close to it, but it's, it's still not Atlanta. This, And I got my respect. The whole city know I'm a beast. Look, if you not from this side and you don't know the facts, you're chilling. Repeat after me. Call that part. It's not Atlanta. Lock on you. It's not Atlanta. Nope. Clay Coat. It's not Atlanta. Nope. Decatur. It's not Atlanta. Nope. Gwinnett. It's not Atlanta. Nope. Roswell. It's not Atlanta. Nope. Forward Park. It's not Atlanta. Nope. Lindburn. It's not Atlanta. Look, the North. It's not Atlanta. Nah. The South. It's not Atlanta. Nah. You get news. It's not Atlanta. Nah. You get news. It's not Atlanta. Nah. Big Rudder on two Atlanta. Yes, you are a purist when it comes <laughs> to the city. Now, 
you have a lyric in the song, rep where you're from, don't rep where you honk. <laughs> Do you feel like outsiders are trying to redefine what Atlanta means without really knowing the city? I feel like they just, it's a cool thing to say that they from Atlanta. That's what they automatically gravitate to. They say that they they only say that because that's what outsiders, like people from out of state, that's what they know because it's a major city in Georgia. But I feel like they also say because it's like a cool thing to say because everybody want to be from Atlanta and the places that they really from is not really known for real. So they're going to say Atlanta because that's like the most lit city in Georgia. Yeah, because the city or I guess the metropolitan area spreads out over this wide range of counties. I mean, we have so many counties that make up our city. I know you were born and raised in Atlanta. What part are you from? I'm from like the metropolitan area. Like it's an area called Zone 3, like Lakewood, Cleveland, Jonesboro, all this stuff. Oh, wait, Jonesboro? It's mm-hmm. not no, Atlanta. not not Jonesboro, Georgia. Jonesboro Road. Oh, okay. I'm <laughs> ready. Do you want me to call you out here? <laughs> no. So tell us about growing up in your part of the city. Do you have a lot of affection for the neighborhood where you grew up? I wouldn't say I got a lot of affection. I just take pride in like where I'm from because it made me who I am today. And we had to like go through a lot of stuff in our neighborhood. And you know what I'm saying? We wasn't like really that fortunate. So we had to do a lot of struggling around. So it's like, I take pride in in the stuff that made me who I am today. Cause it really molded me to be stronger. And it really molded me to like any type of obstacles that come my way, I know how to attack them. So I wouldn't say like, I just love the neighborhood cause it's like a, a beat down neighborhood. Like they trying to rebuild it now, you know what I'm saying? So I don't love it. I just, I just take pride in it. Well, that's impressive. Yeah. So now what does Atlanta mean to you? I'm curious about different scenes, landmarks, things that you think Atlanta couldn't be without, that they are the essence of Atlanta. What's special to you? I ain't gonna lie. I feel like Atlanta is, I don't know nothing that's like really special no more because like, I feel like the city just changing so rapidly. Like it's so many condos being built. I feel like it's turning into like the new LA or the new New York or something. Like I don't, I, I don't really know nothing that's just like I just love it because I'm going to eventually move away from Atlanta because there's too many people from the outside coming here. And it's like the oh. city just filled with like people from out of state now and not people that's actually from here. Well, there are in-town neighborhoods. There are areas that still have a lot of character, though, and, and yeah. some of them you have even cited in the songs. So. <laughs> you must like some aspects of in-town living, but I get what you say about the sprawl and maybe overdevelopment that is yeah, hurting the city. it's moving real fast. Why did you want to film the music video for Sorry Not Sorry at Truist Park? That's in Cobb County. Yeah. So the reason for that location was because it was the new Brave Stadium. Because the old Brave Stadium was right there by Summerhill, but they moved it, and I guess they made it like Georgia State now. Right. So I just had to go where the new Brave Stadium was at. And I don't know why they moved it all the way to Cobb, because I thought that was done, but that was the only like Brave Stadium. And I wanted to keep it in Lemon. Okay. So you, you were there for the Braves in spite of the fact that the corporation that owns them move them to Cobb County. Right. You're wearing Atlanta Falcons gear in the video, Amaretta. Why? <laughs> it was supposed to be Braves gear, but you know they had just, like, around the time when I shot the video, they had just won the championship, so everybody had went in the stores and bought all the Braves <laughs> merch and stuff. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> so when I went in there to buy, because I always usually get, I, I got a whole lot of brave stuff, but I don't wore it for a lot of my different videos. So I didn't have no new stuff. So when I went in there to get it, it was nothing but Falcon gear left. So I had to get the Falcons. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I thought maybe you were sending us a message because the Falcons still play inside the city of Atlanta. Oh, no. No, no statement there. <laughs> Would you tell us about the making of the song and video? Any collaborators you'd like to shout out? I made the song last year in like April, but I just was sitting on it for a minute because I knew that when I dropped it, I had to be like prepared for like what was coming next. And when I did the video, I just wanted it to feel like Atlanta. You know what I'm saying? That's why I did it with like the braids and like the Falcons jersey and stuff. And I had the, what is called? The Slinger car. Cause mm -hmm. I know it's like a popular car in Atlanta that everybody like to drive in and stuff. So I just tried to do it like real Atlanta based, like, you know, make it feel like home to everybody. Yeah. Like collabs. I got Lotto on the remix. And I thought it was real fire. Everybody had a, made a big deal about it because she's from Clayco, but that was the point. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm curious about the pushback, and there's been a lot of it you've gotten from some famous people, too. Yeah. You seem like you can more than handle it, Amaretta, but what are some of the comments you've received? They just be going crazy. Like, a lot of people was making a big deal about the location I shot it at, like, they was talking about my clothes. They were just trying to find any little thing to pick. And, of course, the people from the outskirts, they the most upset because they've been telling everybody that they're from Atlanta. And then I came out and told them <laughs> that they're not. So they embarrassed a little bit. Well, do you feel like there's hope for unity here? The East Point and Clayco and Decatur. Can we all live together in Atlanta harmony? Yeah, we, we, that's what we doing now. They just need to <laughs> know where they're originally from. <laughs> <laughs> and just say the name of the suburbs, not right, Atlanta. Exactly. Okay. Amaretta, this has been so much fun. I thank <laughs> you for talking with me and best of luck with your next music. Thank you so much. Omaretta the Great from her March conversation with City Lights host Lois Reitzes. Her single Sorry Not Sorry is out now. Speaking of the fabric of Atlanta, Sandy Teepin likes to say there's a common thread that runs through her life. Well, many threads, actually. The Atlanta fabric artist has worked in a wide variety of forms, including weaving, costuming, and her current emphasis, quilted collages. In these pieces, she combines traditional designs with modern colors and patterns, and her latest exhibit of quilted collages is currently on view at the Southeast Fiber Arts Alliance. She's also their artist in residence for the month of August, and Sandy joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here. So I'm curious, Sandy, what first brought you into the world of artistic fibers? Oh, that's a long story. But I've always been fascinated by fabrics. I've always had a sewing machine and scissors ready to go. I have a background in costuming, and I've always made clothes for myself or my daughter and my granddaughters. So it's just kind of a natural thing for me to fall into fabric art. Well, when did you first get into quilt making? Well, when I took a collage class at SCAD, I noticed that there were people around me who were entering collage with fabric and papers to different exhibitions. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I can do that. So I tried, got into a show and entered other events and got rejected, but that didn't stop me. I kept waiting for the next opportunities and would do that. And it's been very exciting for me. And I, it brings me a lot of pleasure to even to be rejected because you always learn something from being rejected. I see. And so what you are emphasizing right now is quilted collages. Tell us the difference between a quilt and a collage quilt. Well, a quilt, you'll usually uh, among viewers and people who want to talk about quilts usually are talking about bed quilts, things that 
their grandmothers made or that they owned as a child. And that means it's something to keep you warm. And there are books about it. I mean, a quilt is a thing to keep you warm. I think my work, unless I'm encouraged to do a, a custom-made project for a customer, I don't do bed quilts. I like to think of the colors and the fabrics I used as one giant palette. I like to think of it as the most extraordinary box of crayons a girl could ever have. And I can use fabric like paint. And that's what I, what I strive to do. I don't know if I always get there. I'm always waiting for the next, the next project so I can really treat fabrics the way I think they should be put together, the way they should meld with the things around them. And that's how I think that the idea of collage enters my work. So you mentioned that quilts are historically something to bring you warmth. Your artistic quilt collages, where do you see them living in someone's home? I see them on walls. I see them draped over tables. I I have a quilt that I use when my guests come, that I use on my breakfast table. And then I can use my prettiest dishes. I can put nice glassware and we're all, we can have a quilt as the basis. I like when people send me pictures of where they're, they've installed a quilt and it's behind a big, beautiful couch or in a very wide open room. I just think, well, the quilt found the people, the people found the quilt and it's in the right place. It went to a good home. Mm, I love that. Well, take us through the process of creating one of your pieces. How long do they most often take? I have no idea how long they take <laughs> because I work on several things at any one time. I, I think I actually live with the fabrics before I use them. I buy things I like, so I know I fell in love with them, but they have to be with me for a while before I figure out what happens to them. I, I collect things that I, I think will work, but I don't know when and I don't know how. So when you're collecting these fibers, where are they coming from mostly? Are they secondhand or are you going to fabric stores? Yes, they're, they're secondhand. I buy things from Goodwill and secondhand stores. I like to see brand new men's shirts with tags that haven't been worn. People don't like something, so they give it away. Well, I can use that. I can take it home, wash it and cut it up. My friends bring me fabrics oh, I saw this, I thought of you, so I bought it, and here it is. Okay, now I have that, and most often it works, uh, because they have, they know my work, and they know how I'm thinking, mostly. <laughs> so it all comes together eventually. I like to tell the story of my granddaughter's offering to spend a day in my studio, and they'll sort my fabrics. We'll organize. We'll, we'll put all the yellows in one basket. We'll put all the blues in another basket. And I said, oh, please don't do that. Please don't do that. Because when I go looking for something, I find the things I need. Plus, my brain sorts my fabric. The, all those fabrics then go to the cutting table. They eventually become a collage. I put them together in a very spontaneous manner. So you would rather have your grandchildren not sort your fabric by color? That's right. What would you like them to do for you? When they're there, I want them to have fun with the things I have fun with. And that includes a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, from finding out about new artists and meeting new people and going to arts, art events and, and working with fabric or things they like to do. That's a generational thing. But we, we have it going on. <laughs> I read once that you said that you like order and disorder, design and cultural references. Would you elaborate on how you bring cultural references into your artwork? Oh, that's a wonderful question. I really, I'm an armchair traveler. I did travel in a limited kind of way when I was a UNICEF volunteer. I think the minute you step out of your home country and you start looking around, uh, you see how other people live and you learn 
And from those adventures, I did come home with fabric. But the other thing about a cultural exposure is, is Atlanta. I grew up in a, a Wisconsin town, a city. I was exposed to museums and galleries in Chicago. I went to school in Minneapolis. I met people of other color. I'm, I, my classmates were Chippewa and American Indians, African-Americans. I had a very diverse art school. I also realized that coming to Atlanta just gave me a whole world full of people. Uh, my first involvement in Atlanta was with uh, cultural affairs. I was part of the first group to talk about the National Black Arts Festival. Meanwhile, I'm still continuing my UNICEF volunteerism. I just think everything that the Carter Center, <laughs> you know, SCAD, uh, everything around us is just a, a, a rich community of art and artists uh, from all over the world. I think one of the best things that we have as a city, as an arts community, is our diversity. That plays always in my work because I'm constantly thinking about, well, how does something from Senegal go with something that I bought in Asheville? <laughs> I think it may be trite to say, I like that we find where we are agreeing and we do connect rather than the places where we don't meet. Uh, I think Atlanta is a good example of finding the places where we do get to meet and coalesce, if you will, as, um, as a group, as an arts community. And I think that's, that happens here at uh, SEFAA. And I think that happens at Arts Exchange in East Point. It happens on Aub Auburn Avenue. I've been a part of, of each of those uh, groups. I like to think that I bring all of that, all of that knowledge and vision to my work. I think it shows up because I can, I see it and I think other people comment on it. I, th I think I have found my place in art quilt world. Very nice. Well, take us through some of the highlights on view at this current exhibit at Southeast Fiber Arts Alliance. And can you describe them for us? Yes, in a way I can. I've used color a la Joseph Albers. I think a lot of things relate to uh, historical patterns of the things that are that are currently up are products of putting color studies together. A lot of times I just call them color studies because what I, what's happened is that it just they just belong together because they're and it's what I how I interpret those ideas of color field, color, school, all of the things I've read about from Annie Albers and Joseph Albers to Alma Thomas from those all things fit together for me. So I try to use those influences. Oh, I love that as a description of what influences you. How about walking us through the exhibit? For example, literally, like I walk through the door, what am I seeing? The first thing you see is a lot of color. And I think a lot of times when people think quilted collage, they're still looking for quilts. And I, I have to be very quick to say that I think what I've reiterated earlier is that the quilts you want for a bed are not here unless you want me to do something special for you. And I think people see a diversity in color. I think they see a diversity in size. I'm currently caught up on a map craze. And one of my quilts just got sent off from this exhibit to another exhibit, which is the Great Wisconsin Quilt Show. So, and that starts in September. But that piece is what I call number two of a series I'm doing. And I, th I think that's probably going to carry me for a little a little bit longer. We do have a second piece in this show that is part of the map series. So we're not we're not exactly lacking of a current phase in my in my work. Uh, the other things I re I think are just sort of 
are really just kind of comfortable ways to look at art, different ways to look at art when it's up on a wall and it's fabric, not paint. I like to encourage people to think about the pleasure that those colors brings to one's eye. It's a brain, hand, eye thing. That's the message I want to deliver about my work. So how many pieces are in this exhibit? 22 pieces. They're all sort of joined together by process. I think you'll see uh, the repetition is there. I think the idea of the four pieces we have all on one wall just kind of tells you how comfortable they are as objects all in one space. The things that can hang by themselves that appear on their own are unique in their own way. And they, and they do well as a group. Atlanta fabric artist Sandy Teepin. Her quilted collage exhibit is on view now at the Southeast Fiber Arts Alliance through August 31st. More information is on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, H. Johnson's Jazz Moment, and today H. will teach us about Milt Jackson. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. WABE's H. Johnson has been a fixture on our station since 1978. As a host of both blues classics and jazz classics, H. continually educates and entertains WAB listeners every Friday and Saturday night. H. recently added City Lights music contributor to his exceedingly long resume, and he now joins us every other Friday to share a bit of his incredible jazz knowledge. This is H. Johnson's Jazz Moment. I want to talk about Milt Jackson here for a minute. Milt Jackson, you familiar with that name? Jazz fans are. And if you're not a jazz fan, you will be familiar with that name after you listen carefully and do as we tell you to do with your computers or whatever. Do some research. Milt Jackson is the name to be uh, dealt with in such a fine, mellow way because he's the last of a bunch of heroes. You've heard of a Red Norvo vibes player and also a xylophone player. Terry Gibbs, Cal Jader. One of the last innovators was Lionel Hampton when he played with Benny Goodman. Now, all these gentlemen were influences on one another and on players who came behind them, professional and non-professional. But the most profound one, Milt Jackson. Milton Jackson from out of Detroit, Michigan on January the 1st, 1923. Milt Jackson, a.k.a. Bags, studied music at Michigan State and he played with Dizzy Gillespie, 1945. Did a lot of stints with Dizzy, but he, uh, Dizzy discovered him, as a matter of fact, playing in some obscure place with an unknown group, which is usually the case with most great musicians. They play in obscure places, even today. Even today, you'll find some great musicians playing for pennies for a non-appreciative audience somewhere in some little dive somewhere. But if you're there, if you happen to be there and you luck up on it, you can hear some great jazz. But getting back to Milk, when he uh, was discovered by John Burks Gillespie, better known as Dizzy, he did a lot of work, Milt did, with uh, Tad Dameron, who was a great composer, particularly a jazz composer, and also with Woody Herman, who had a great swinging band, and he became noted. Everyone noticed Milt Jackson primarily when he performed with the Modern Jazz Quartet, and that was a group of musicians who were formidable themselves, great musicians. John Lewis, great composer on piano, he composed a standard called, it is now a standard called Django, D-J-A-N-G-O, just in case. And there was also Percy Heath on bass, who's made a lot of recordings of originals and well-known tunes. Connie Kay on drums, great drummer. And of course, Milton Baggs Jackson on the vibraharp. He became noted with that group, the Modern Jazz Quartet. Although he played different outside the group, he played differently. He had his own, when the group wasn't performing somewhere, Milt would get a little group together and perform. As a matter of fact, he did it here in Atlanta. And that's when I first became acquainted with a pianist by the name of Johnny O'Neill. You can check him out too. Milt played with him in Atlanta. He was also appointed to the Faculty of Jazz Studies in Lenox, Massachusetts. 
you recorded with many of those of the who's who of jazz. As a matter of fact, if you started researching Milt Jackson like I did, it's a never-ending thing that he's done. It's never-ending. He goes on and on and on playing with so many people. People like Sonny Rollins, Hank Mobley, Miles Davis, Thelonious Monk, even vocalists like Dinah Washington, Ray Charles, played with Oscar Peterson, Count Basie. He's done it all. My favorite listening pleasure comes when I hear Milt Jackson play a ballad. Any ballad by Milt Jackson is all right with me. And if you don't believe it, listen to this ballad and you'll see where we're coming from. Milt Jackson playing for you here on City Lights. I'm H. Johnson, and I'm going to listen along with you to Milt Jackson. WABE's H. Johnson and our series, H. Johnson's Jazz Moment. Catch H's Blues Classic show tonight and every Friday from 10 p.m. till midnight and make sure to return for Jazz Classics every Saturday night from 8 p.m. till 2 a.m. right here on 90.1 WABE. You've been listening to City Lights on WABE, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., Grammy-winning banjo virtuoso Bela Fleck joins us ahead of his upcoming performance at the Eastern on Saturday, August 27th. Plus, we'll hear about the bi-monthly trap sushi parties happening at Monday Night Garage, and music contributor Vaughn Phoenix will join us for this month's Punk Black To Go. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org. There you'll find a complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzes. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelly Canavy. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram and you can follow Lois on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.